Well, a big thank you to the worship team, and uh, I'd like to share a blessing with you that I've had already today. Um, it hinges on my own failure, mistake, but last week I was supposed to phone and tell them what I was preaching on and let the worship team work on that, and I totally forgot. I remembered Saturday afternoon. <laughs> said, no use phoning now. They've picked them all. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm preaching on Jesus, our King, and title is exactly, Here Comes the King, and I couldn't have picked the songs better if I'd have been here myself. <laughs> it's a wonderful blessing to know the Holy Spirit works in all these things. And I've experienced that many, many times preaching all over Canada, where I've gone into a church where I don't know anybody, and the hymns match what I had to say. <laughs> the songs are, are God directs those things. And that also gives me a little confidence about this sermon this morning, because it's, it's my leftover Christmas sermon. <laughs> you see, at Curve Lake First Nation, our church there is quite small. And uh, I heard your church here was quite small last Sunday too. But uh, at Curve Lake, uh, only a very few people in our church actually live at Curve Lake. Even some of the natives who come to our church live in Peterborough and drive out for the church. And of course, most of our non-natives who come to our church drive. And so with the ice last week, it dwindled and dwindled and dwindled until Saturday we realized nobody was coming. <laughs> Maybe two or three. And we actually canceled church. And that, that really goes against my grain. I, I feel like you've got to have church service on Christmas Sunday. Uh, but anyway, uh, we canceled church. So here I was left with this sermon all ready to go. <laughs> Nowhere to preach it. <laughs> and then I thought, well, maybe next Sunday up, up at Halliburton. And I thought, I'd ask them whether they want to hear my leftover Christmas. And I no, no, I'm not asking them. Because <laughs> half of them might leave. <laughs> just going to tell them they're going to get it. <laughs> um, so here I am talking about Christmas, the coming of Christ, and I want to do it from Matthew's Gospel. And if you have your Bible or you want to use a pew Bible, look up Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to look at the first two chapters of Matthew. I want to start by highlighting three verses that emphasize what Matthew was doing here. Uh, when you look at this, it's, it's about the birth of Christ, but it's all around the birth of Christ. It's totally different than Luke. Luke's story has the Annunciation about John the Baptist, the Annunciation about Jesus, and the birth of John the Baptist, and then the birth of Jesus, and then the, the coming of the shepherds to praise, and all. You know, it's all about the birth of Christ. But Matthew's Gospel is very, very different. Look at verse, chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, the first section is the genealogy of Jesus. Then jump down to chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. So there's a discussion about the birth of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi came. So he's got the genealogy. Then a little paragraph about the person of Jesus Christ. Not actually, it doesn't actually talk about the birth of Christ at all. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And then later, after the birth of Christ, the Magi came. 
What's Matthew doing here? Uh, it's important, first of all, start off that you don't call the people who came in chapter 2 the three kings. Okay? Just don't do that. <laughs> if you have to sing we three kings, sing we three magi. <laughs> because they weren't kings and it spoils everything about what Matthew was doing here. The theme of the whole gospel of Matthew is Jesus as our king. It runs right from beginning to end, all the way through the book of Matthew, that Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so Jesus, Matthew starts the very first chapter with the description of the genealogy of Jesus because it legitimizes who he was. He was a son of Abraham. The promise of the covenant came through Abraham. And Jesus' genealogy is traced all the way back to Abraham. Now, there are obviously some gaps in it. There were years when they had no records. But the purpose of it is to show that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Secondly, the son of David. He is the prince of, of, of Israel from the family of David. Third, he is of the people who came back to restore the nation. Zerubbabel was a prince that after the exile, he brought the people back to Israel and reestablished the nation. He was a prince in the line of David, but he was never allowed to be called a king. He was a governor under the Persian rule. But they were the people that restored the covenant. And so the genealogy of Jesus legitimizes him as the king of Israel. He had every right to be the king of Israel. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was a descendant of David. He was a descendant of Zerubbabel. He was a prince. Of course, this is all by the line of Joseph who was actually Jesus' stepfather. But it gives the, Jesus our king. The king is coming. Now the second section has to do with that he is absolutely no ordinary king. Though he is of the line of Joseph, back to Zerubbabel, back to David, back to Abraham, he really is from the Holy Spirit. Look at this passage, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Underline that. Through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, even the angel knew where the genealogy came from. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There it is again, underlined. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ was a special creation of God from the Holy Spirit, so that he was born of a virgin. He had a perfect human nature with no sin and a perfect God nature with no failure. He was of the Holy Spirit. Now he had two purposes in coming. The first one, they were to name him Jesus. Jesus, 
the Hebrew Yeshua means God saves. So his, his very name that was given to him by the angels and given several times to Mary and Joseph. His name was to be Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That's very important, right at the start of the story. This king is of a different kingdom. Years later, Jesus would stand before Pilate, and Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, my kingdom is of a different kingdom. It's not of this age, not of this world. Yes, he was a king, but he came not to run political things, but to save people from their sin. The second purpose is a wonderful quote from Isaiah. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus came into the world, God came into our world. I, I just love that phrase. You know that song, Mary, Did You Know? Mark Lowry's song, Mary, Did You Know? If you don't have it, you better get it. <laughs> One of the lines, it just, every time I hear it, he says, when you kissed your little baby, you kissed the face of God. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that, that this baby is God with us. And not only is he God with us, he would forgive our sins so that the Holy Spirit could come and we would live Emmanuel. God is with us. That's the purpose of the king. So we have the genealogy of the king and then we have the purpose of the king. And then he jumps right past everything that Luke recorded. <laughs> he just jumps right by the whole Bethlehem thing and he says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, I, I happened to check this in the, in the King James Version, and I was fascinated, it says, Herod the king. And I thought, that's the contrast. There's Jesus the king, and then there's Herod the king. And the two are polar opposites. Start with the genealogy. Here's this genealogy that legitimizes Jesus as a son of Zerubbabel, as a son of David, as a son of Abraham. Herod was not even of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't of the family of David. In fact, he wasn't even a Jew. For goodness sake, <laughs> he's called the king of, Jew, of Israel. He wasn't even a Jew. You know how he got to be king of Israel? He was an Idumean. The Idumeans are a desert people that live south of Israel, what we now call Saudi Arabia and the Sinai Peninsula. They lived in that desert world, and they had a very wealthy trading business. They traded from Iran to Egypt and back. And uh, he was of a very wealthy family and was sent to the equivalent of our high school kind of thing in Rome. And he went to the same high school, the same... Uh, learning academy as a young man named Mark Anthony and they became best of friends and through that they met Cleopatra and they were good buddies Herod and Cleopatra were good buddies too and Herod had enough money and enough influence 
that they had the Senate of Rome appoint him as king of the Jews. How do you think the Jews like that? <laughs> so to legitimize himself as somewhat of a Jew, he began to try and um, live by some of the Jewish laws, but more important, he found an absolutely beautiful young Jewish woman named Mary Amney, and he married her. And at least his wife was Jewish. <laughs> and it appears that he really loved her, and that he really adored her. But he was different from Jesus in a hundred ways. Think about what was Herod really, really known for. He was known for several things. One, he was a master politician, a master compromiser. He, raised, he impoverished the Jewish people by raising money to pay Rome. And in doing that, he was able to always buy himself a place as king of the Jews. He was king of the Jews for 50 years. And the government in Rome changed several times, and Herod always chose the right successor. He always ended up on the right side of the pie. <laughs> and so the next Caesar in Rome would appoint him king of the Jews again. His earthly kingdom was amazing. But compare it with Jesus. I've always used the quote from, from the discussion with Pilate. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, I'd fight. My kingdom's not like your kingdom. The other thing that Herod, another thing Herod was very famous for, he was a master builder, and he hired masses of people to build. And he directed it himself. He was a genius. He built the whole city of Caesarea by the sea as an honor to Caesar. The city was totally designed by Herod and designed a a fresh water, a, a salt water port, a deep water port that was totally artificial. There's no natural harbor on the coast of Israel. And so Herod built an artificial harbor that would, would uh, protect a whole Roman fleet at one time. And to manage the city, he had an aqua built, aqua, aqueduct built all the way from Mount Carmel which is, um, I think, 65 miles, to bring fresh water to his new city. He also did the same thing in Jerusalem. He built huge aqueduct to bring water in, fresh water in all year round into the city. His most famous thing is rebuilding the Temple of Jerusalem. 46 years it took to rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem. It's a massive project. I could go on and on about it. It's absolutely astounding. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, I'll just give you a little hint. If you, if you look at the stonework in Israel and you see a finished border on the stone like that, all the way around, the stone may be huge and the border will be bigger as the stones get bigger. If there's a finished border like that on a stone, that was done by Herod's men. And you can go to Jerusalem today and you can see the stonework that Herod's men built and it's still there in an earthquake zone 2,000 years later. The cornerstones that hold up the temple mount, the false floor that was built for the temple, the cornerstones are 20 feet long and 8 feet thick. 
And you know, that's not the biggest stone. If you go in the tunnel that goes along the street that went along the side of the Temple Mount in the days of Jesus, there's a stone in there that has a base of a 30-foot retaining wall that's hollow on the backside. Now, any of you guys that ever tried to build a retaining wall that will stand up for more than five years? <laughs> this thing is hollow on the backside and 30 feet high. You know how he did it? They anchored it with a stone that is 600 tons. 42 feet long and 15 feet thick. And it was quarried two miles north of Jerusalem. How did they get it there? <laughs> 600 tons and they moved it. They weren't so dumb years ago, you know. <laughs> See, Herod was an amazing builder. Amazing. And he also built palaces for himself. He had a beautiful palace in Caesarea. He had a beautiful palace on the west side of Jerusalem. He had that amazing palace hanging down the front side of Matsada. You know that palace that's in layers down the front of the hill? Absolutely stunning. He also built a whole mountain. There's a place called the Herodian near Beersheba. And he built a conical hill, a mountain. You can see it for 10 miles in any direction. And built himself a great big castle on the top of it. And you know what? He had his men build his tomb there. And I often think about this. When Jesus and Mary and Joseph went on the donkey and went to, to Egypt, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? <laughs> Later on in the chapter. <laughs> when they walked toward Gaza and Beersheba and Gaza, they would have walked right past the Herodians. And there's the tomb of the dying king and the baby king riding the donkey going by. Jesus wasn't a builder. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. He never owned a house. But he was the real king. And in Herod and Jesus, you see this astounding contrast. Here's this little boy... I don't, I don't think that the, the Magi actually came to the manger. I think the Magi came sometime later, maybe a year later, maybe a year and a half later. So here's this little guy just learning to walk. And here's this old king, sick, paranoid, dying. Here's Jesus the king who came to bring life, an abundant life, who spoke peace and healing everywhere he went. And Herod's the old king who was a man of death. You get the story. These magi. Who are the magi? The magi were court wise men who worked for the highest authorities in particularly Persia, but also Babylon. They were astoundingly well educated. Very influential, very powerful. They had a great influence on the government in any, any land. They studied astronomy, and they studied astrology, and they studied philosophy, and they studied all kinds of other stuff. And somehow these people were expecting... Now, I think they were expecting a new king for the Jews. My personal opinion is they probably had the writings of Daniel. Daniel would have been a magi, a wise man in the court. 
And they would have had Daniel's writings. And there's one amazing image in Daniel that there's going to be a head of, a head of gold, which was Babylon, and then a, a chest of silver, which was going to be Persia, Medo-Persia. And then there was going to be hips of iron, bronze, bronze, which was going to be, it says the hips of bronze was going to be Greece. And then the legs of iron, feet of iron and clay, which refers to Rome. And then a great stone, not cut by human hands, would be cut out of the mountain and would come down and crush the kingdoms of the earth. And if you look at it, it says pretty much within a few years what was going to happen. And I think these guys were looking for it. And then God sent them a special star. I don't know the nature of the special star. It could have been actually just an arrangement of certain stars and galaxies that we already have that showed there was going to be something special in Jerusalem. But it was a special star that sent them on a great journey to Jerusalem. It would have been hundreds of miles from Iran to Israel. And they come to Israel, come to the city of Jerusalem, and they say, where is the new king that's been born? We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And it says Herod and the whole city of Jerusalem were in a tumult. You know why? Herod killed anybody who even looked like a king. Herod was hated by the Jewish people. There was always plots against his life. In fact, just a few years before this story happened, one of his own sons plotted to kill him so he could be the king. And his beautiful Mariamne sided with her son. And Herod, in a fit of rage, had both of them killed that day. His own wife and his own son. Two other sons were killed for threatening to take the throne. In fact, one of the Roman senators said, if you desire a long life, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Because <laughs> he didn't eat pork. <laughs> the man of death. And here comes the king, the real king. And the whole city would have been in turmoil because heads were going to roll. If anybody suggested there might be another king, heads were going to roll, literally. And the whole city, it could have been anybody. I mean, he could have picked on any of the, the wise men of his own court. He, could have, he was irrational, he was paranoid, he was crazy with rage. And they were terrified. But he calls in the wise men, the magi, and asks them when they saw the star. Tell them two years ago. Then he tells them where, he asks his own wise men, his own scribes and Pharisees, where will the Messiah, the new king, be born? They tell him plain, Bethlehem. As the prophet said, Bethlehem, out of you will come a ruler and a shepherd for my people. Then he tells the wise men, go to Bethlehem, find the little boy, and then come back and tell me, so I can go there and worship him too. 
I expect the wise man saw through that. <laughs> Herod worshipped nobody. And they went. They went to Bethlehem. And here, this is amazing, isn't it? Now the star, what it was, it had to be some special creation of God because the star wasn't away up there. The star was there guiding them down the road. And the path from Jerusalem to Bethlehem was only five miles. There's less than here to go to West Gilbert. And they, the star guided them down the path. And then when they got to Bethlehem, the star showed them the very house. This was something amazing. <laughs> but we're in it. I mean, the whole story's miracles. Just miracle after miracle after miracle. And the star brings them to the very house, and they find Mary and the child, and they get down on their knees, and they worship him. The wise men, these powerful, influential, rich people who have come from miles and miles get down on their knees and they worship him and they open their treasures and give him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Wealth, wealth, wealth. It must have been mind-boggling to Mary and Joseph, these poor peasant people, to all of a sudden have bags of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You could sell it for millions and millions. But God knew they needed provision. They were going to Egypt. God knew what he was doing all along. And then the angel came and warned the wise men in a dream. said, don't go back to Herod. He only wants to kill the boy. And they snuck out another way. From Bethlehem, they would have probably taken the road to En Gedi. A path through the hills to En Gedi and then to Jerusalem, to Jericho and across the river. They only had to go about 25 or 30 kilometers to be outside of Herod's territory. So the very next day, they're out of there. And that night, an angel came to Joseph again. said, Joseph, get up right now. Take the baby and his mother. And oh, it's interesting, the angels always say the baby and his mother. The baby and his mother. The child and his mother. And go right now to Egypt because Herod will come and kill him. So they get up in the middle of the night and get on the road as fast as they can. And they go past the Herodian and past Beersheba and down to Gaza and into Egypt. And Herod is furious, absolutely furious. And he sends his soldiers to go to Bethlehem and kill every baby boy under the age of two years old in the village and in the vicinity. It might not have been a lot of kids. I mean, Bethlehem was only a village. But the, the imagery of it is astounding. To murder those innocent little kids just to protect that wicked old king that nobody else would be king. And here you see an understanding for the whole story of Jesus. Here comes the king, the real king, and all hell breaks loose. There's jealousy and fear and anger and rage and murder and weeping and wailing and sorrow. And you realize? Because Jesus came in Bethlehem and because God delivered Jesus so he would live another 33 years to die on the cross, all those little babies died because of Jesus. And that's how you understand Jesus. He's the real king. 
He's the light. But when he comes, all hell breaks loose. What's the next story in Matthew? Well, you'll be here to supper if you get me going. <laughs> the next story is Jesus' temptation, his baptism. He goes to the river, he's baptized, and the Holy Spirit comes and sits on him like a dove. And God says, this is my beloved son whom I love. Listen to him. The very next paragraph, he was driven of the Holy Spirit out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Conflict, the war was on. You could go through it all, all the way through the book of Matthew. Look at Matthew 13. There's a whole series of parables, and every parable starts with the kingdom of God is like. It's all about the king and how the king fits into this wicked world. And finally, one Sabbath day, they took Jesus and led him into the city of, of Jerusalem in a great victory parade. And they sang in the street, Hosanna to the, to the son of who? Hosanna to the son of David. Here comes our king. Five days later, they crucified him. But the story doesn't end there. The conflict is always real. But the king rises again. King always wins. The real king. Those first two chapters of Matthew give you a philosophy to understand and interpret the whole story of Jesus. Here comes the king. And here comes the war. But the king will rise again. If you want to really get interested in something, you can interpret history with those two chapters. Over and over and over again through the 2,000 years, you'll see it happen again and again and again. There's a great movement of God in some way. And the King Jesus comes to the fore. And then the great conflict starts. And there's suffering on every hand. And yet the work of Jesus goes on and on. And the work of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of Jesus Christ will rise again. In every situation. I remember 25 years ago, uh, Ray Waldock came back from Africa and he showed pictures at our church in Peterborough of an amazing baptismal series I never will forget. There was a picture from Africa of people, a whole hillside along the side of a river, just a mass of people. And then there was lines going down into the river. And there was a whole, I don't know how many, 20, 30 pastors in the river baptizing people. One after another. And they'd go out this side and then they sang. The people on this side singing. The people on this side singing. They said they baptized 9,000 people in one day. Would you like to have been there? <laughs> oh, wow, what a party. You know where that was? That was in Kivu province in the east side of the... Congo, Belgium, Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo. In the 25 years since there, that neighborhood has been devastated by an earthquake and a volcano. That area has been swamped by the refugees from Rwanda. The military has broken down and there's been civil war and 
just almost a failed state situation and people dying and starving. It's been hell on earth. But the king is still king. You go and talk to the people that live there and they'll still say Jesus is the king. And it will rise again. It will come again. More importantly, understanding this imagery of the real king and the imposter king helps you to interpret yourself. You see, all of us are faced with Jesus. He's the real king. And we're also faced in our own hearts and in our culture with the imposter king. There's always a Herod somewhere. And I started off with a Christmas sermon. Now, now I think it's a New Year's sermon. What are you going to do next year? How's next year going to be any different than this year? I think New Year's is a great time to stop and think about the past and about the future. I'm not into New Year's resolutions. I'm too weak for that. I don't even make them. <laughs> but I like, to, I like to pause and think about myself, my ministry, what I do, my family, where we're going. A lot of people don't want to do that. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that's why people like to get drunk on New Year's Eve. They don't want to look back and look ahead. They want to just skip it. So my first thing for application is don't get drunk on the New Year's Eve, okay? <laughs> Take some time to think. <laughs> and you have possibilities. One possibility is to be like the wise men. They made it a priority of life, a great sacrifice to look for Jesus. They would go over mountain and river and desert to find Jesus. Will you? When they found him, they worshipped him and they gave him their treasures and they, they gave him obedience. Our float for the Curve Lake Christmas Parade this year was Wise Men Still Seek Him. Made a 15-foot long banner. Wise Men Still Seek Him. The king is coming. Here comes the king. Will you go look for him, worship him, serve him, love him? What about Herod? When Jesus comes, all of us are faced with the reality he's the king and I'm not. Do you get that? He's the king, you're not. And in every one of us, there's something that rises up with jealousy or fear, or rebellion, or anger. Nobody tells me what to do. And we so badly want control. We want to control things so things turn out the way we want it to turn out. If anybody disagrees with us and makes things turn out differently, well, we'll take off their head somehow. Not literally, but we'll do something with it. And we have to come to terms with that. And it's not a one-time thing. I've been a Christian for 50 more years, for more than 55 years. And still, sometimes there's old hearts just like Herod. I have to repent of that and turn away. 
Make that New Year's resolution that this next year we're going to search for Jesus and follow Jesus and walk with Jesus. We'll not be with Herod. We'll stand against Herod in our own hearts and in our society. One more application. We live in a different society today. There isn't much in the way of powerful royalty left. We live in a society that for 200 years has emphasized that every person decides their own right. That every person decides what's right and wrong for themselves. That every person decides what they will value and what they won't. We make our own value systems. We don't receive it from God. We make it up ourselves. We live in a society that is characterized, I think, by the phrase from the book of Judges, every person did what was right in their own eyes. And it was a terrible disaster in the book of Judges. And it's a terrible disaster today. It's like people don't even care that Jesus came. Because nobody's going to tell them what to do. They don't even listen to a guy like Herod. Because nobody tells them what to do. Nobody can tell us what to think. Nobody can tell us what was good and bad. We do our own thing. And that is maybe worse than being Herod. At least he responded to Jesus. He didn't just ignore him. And we live in a society where we have to decide for ourselves. And, and it's not, again, it's not a one-time decision. It's something you have to work with and live with and struggle with. Here comes the king. The real king. And he has every right to tell you how to think and how to live and what to do and what not to do. He has every right to send you anywhere in the world he wants and he has every right to call you to live or call you to die. He has every right over your life. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And how are you going to respond? Like the wise person? Like Herod? Or like the modern humanist? More importantly, how much of each will be in your heart tomorrow? How much of each will go with you into the new year? Here comes the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptural teaching on the reality of Jesus Christ. The king of Israel, the king of kings, who came into our world by the Holy Spirit, came to save us from our sins and to bring us into the presence of God. And in the coming of the king, there's always turmoil. And in our own hearts, Lord, we pray today that you will help us to be those who are wise and make it the priority of our life to search for Jesus, to worship Jesus, to give him our all, to obey him and love him and walk with him forever. God, protect us from the conflict of the world and the ignorance of the world. 
Help us to follow our King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.